Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Okay, welcome to episode nine of the Be The Right Club Today podcast. We have a, a great interview lined up today with uh, legendary golf instructor Jim McLean. But before we get to that, uh, Hal, how are you doing today? I'm good, Jamie. And you? I am doing fantastic. How are things going at the Darmour Club? Well, we've had a, quite a bit of rain lately, so it's slowed us down a little bit. Uh but we're working on the road hole right now, on the 17th hole, and uh, it's going to be a fantastic finish here at Darmore. Uh, excited about what's going on. Uh, the golf course is going to be great. Clubhouse is going up. A lot of things happening over here. Yeah, and uh, we've got a few clips again for the start of this episode. If you're watching on YouTube, you can um, you can tune into tune into those clips and see how the the course is coming along. Um, I'm excited for when they start uh, putting some grass down on it, Hal. Yeah, well, right around the 1st of June, we're going to start putting the first grass down. So uh, they're putting the irrigation in right now on uh, 5, 6, 7. Uh, it'll continue on around, and uh, the lake is just about finished. So uh, the wet well is done. Pump station will be going in. As soon as we get the pump station in, we'll be uh, uh, looking to irrigate. So it's been a great couple of weeks of golf, Al, in the last few weeks. We just had the Zurich, uh, the team tournament just finished at TPC Louisiana. And then the week before, we had uh, the event at Harbortown. Um, it was a designated event this year, which a lot of people initially were unsure about having a designated event straight after the Masters. But it was a great finish with Fitzpatrick and Spieth in that playoff. How good is it to see Spieth back up there contending again? Well, Harbor Town's a great golf course. And uh, what a finish uh, they had that week. You know, a lot of controversy because Rory pulled out of the event, you know. And, uh, you know, I want to stay out of the drama of all that because, I mean, Rory's been a great ambassador. Uh, he's played a tremendous amount of golf, uh, haven't played professional golf for a long time. I know that sometimes you just worn slap out and, uh, you know, if you played when you were at that point of being worn slap out, you just, it would be sloppy and, uh, not, a, not representative of the kind of player that he is. So, you know, I, I, like for some understanding. I think Rory's been great for the game. So that's just my opinion. Yeah, it's, it seems like, uh, yeah, maybe he's a little worn out. We haven't actually heard uh, from Rory since the, he missed the cut of the Masters, but uh, it can't be easy to try to compete at that level with um, all the distractions going on with the tour and live. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is, you know, the masters and live, uh, everybody being back together. It seemed like it went pretty smooth. Both, both tours were represented at the finish line. And, uh, uh you know, I think one of the things that's going to be really tough and I'm starting to see some of the things in the, 
in the news about it, you know, they don't play enough golf to be sharp all the time. Yeah. And, you know, that I'm talking live right now. Yeah. And, you know, I just read where they had a great event down in Australia and a lot of people really liked it. Well, maybe that's where they ought to play all the time, you know, it's in <laughs> Australia because, I mean, they had a lot of people at the golf tournament, unlike everywhere else. And, uh, but I will tell you this, that is a long ways to go for an American <laughs> player. <laughs> I wonder how good that'll, uh, how successful that'll be. Yeah. It looked like, uh, looked like it was maybe one of Liv's best events so far, um, down there. Uh, I know the Australian golfing fans were, were desperate for a big event down there because they've kind of been starved of that, starved of that in the, in the last few years. And, you know, they've had some iconic players over the years. So a uh, huge golf following down there. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that they had an event where they could uh, grow the game. That's yeah. what they keep talking about, <laughs> growing the game. Yeah, exactly. So um, we've got Jim McLean coming on now. So uh, what are you looking forward to discussing with Jim today? Well, uh, it's going to be ex- fun to reminisce basically Jim and I go back an awful long ways uh you know Jim uh I first got acquainted with Jim through uh Jackie Burke and uh, then he and I and George Zeringer spent a lot of time together in New York and when he was at Sleepy Hollow I would go out there and work on my golf swing a lot with Jim uh so and you know he was around Jimmy Ballard a lot. I don't know if we'll get into talking about that or not, but he was, uh, Jim, I, I'll tell you about Jim. Jim learned the game from everybody, not just one or two people. I mean, yeah. Jim took in as much information as he could possibly take in from all the great players that he could spend time around. Yeah. And, you know, he's one of the few teachers in the game, honestly, that played at a very high level himself and also played with people all the time that played at a very high level. So, you know, he got to see firsthand great players play golf because he's playing right along the side. Yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excited to hear uh, his insight into uh, all those great players he's seen and coached and worked with. So, yeah, we'll bring you that interview. We'll be back right after the break. This episode is brought to you by Holderness and Born. Let's talk about their polo shirts for a second. The fit and fabrics are one of my favourites out there, but Holderness and Born really changed the game with the collar on their shirts. You can really spot a Holderness and Born collar. It has premium interfacing, sewn-in collar stays, and an English cut that is modern but not too aggressive. Ultimately, what does that all mean? It means you look more polished and more put together. A great collar can frame your face and give you great posture. A great collar also stays sharp, especially in the heat of the summer as you sweat or maybe you're sweating over those nervy six-footers. Check them out at hbgolf.com and use code HSUTTON15 for 15% off your next order. Okay, everyone, welcome to episode nine of Be The Right Club Today podcast. And we're delighted to have Jim McLean join Hal and I today. Uh, Jim, as I'm sure all our uh, listeners are well aware, uh, is one of the top coaches uh, in the country over many, many years and uh, has worked with players at all levels of the game, uh, with major champions, all the way to the beginner golfer. So Jim, welcome to the pod. How are, how are you doing today? 
Yeah, well, I'm doing great, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. So, Jim, let's get started. University of Houston, Houston, Texas, all the good players that you played with, your introduction to Jackie Burke. Tell us all about that. <laughs> well, Hal, it's great to be with you. Uh, we've had a lot of great days together, and I've watched you play you know, some of the best golf I've ever seen anyone do. Maybe we, maybe we can talk about that later. But, yeah, I grew up in Seattle, and I got a, a four-year scholarship to Houston to go play there. And uh, it was a great thing in my life. Uh, I ended up living with some great players. I lived with John Mahaffey and won a PGA championship. I lived with Bill Rogers, who's still a great friend of mine. Um, he won the British Open. I lived with uh, Bruce Litsky. And uh, Bruce, unfortunately, as you know, how yeah, I saw you at the at the funeral service, was one of my really great friends. Uh, one of the great players for a long time on the PGA Tour. Um, as you know, Hal, a guy that we all wish – we all wish we could be like because he did, and it's a true thing. He didn't really practice gifted. He, he played his one fade shot and, and could hit it a long ways and just uh, enjoyed life. He, he, he didn't have to work at it very hard. He's just one of, probably one of the most gifted people that's ever played the game. Uh, Fuzzy Zeller was at school with me. I didn't live with Fuzzy. Um, Bobby Watkins was on our team. Tom Jenkins Guys, you know, uh, some people maybe forgot, but really, you know, good tour players, you know, tremendous college players. So I, I was very lucky. We had 40 guys, believe it or not, on the, on the team at Houston, and five guys played. So we were in a very competitive situation. Uh, coach Williams was probably the most famous college coach. He won the NCAA 17 times. Uh, and we had we had a lot of fun. Forty of us lived in the athletic dorm, and uh, we had some crazy times and a lot of competition. We had to qualify if you weren't if you weren't uh, on the top five, you were qualifying to try to make the team, trying to get a chance to to play. And a lot of good players uh, came and left. Uh, one of them was Jim Simons, who was a very good friend of mine, and he, and he ended up transferring to Wake Forest. And he was a really great player. The year after he left, he led the U.S. Open after three rounds. And uh, I always used to tell Coach, man, it's a good thing we got rid of uh, Jim Simons because he kicked him off the team when he was a freshman <laughs> for not playing good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do, you think, why, why do you, what do you think the difference was? Why did he not play well at Houston? How we came in there not knowing – well, how was – I mean, excuse me. Jimmy was a great junior golfer. He'd already played in two U.S. Opens in high school. So uh, he he came in with the big name, you know, and he was expected to play good. But you're in a, such a different environment coming down into Texas. He, he grew up in Pennsylvania. And uh, there were some really good guys on that team. And they just kicked his ass basically every day. And... <laughs> He just got lost a little confidence, and he was, you know, kind of shooting 75s a lot of days. Uh, in the winter time. you know what it's like in Texas. It's, it's tough. But, um, yeah. you know, 75s aren't going to get it. And in a meeting, uh, Jim had stepped up to say that he, he wasn't going to play in some qualifying because he was getting ready to qual try and qualify for the U.S. Open. And Coach Williams said, 
but you can just get your ass back to Pennsylvania. We don't need any more 75 shooters on this golf team, you know, and that was the end. <laughs> that was the end of it. But, um, Jimmy always remained a great friend of mine. And, uh, um, he died. He's another guy that passed away early, Al, you know, but he was, a he was a super player and just part of the, some of the crazy things that happened at the university of Houston. Well, during your time at, uh, Houston, you got to meet some pretty famous guys and get to know them really well, Mr. Uh, Burke and Mr. Demerit. Tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, every year, Ben Hogan came down and stayed at Champions, and, and he was best friends with Jimmy Demerit. Uh, they were the all Fort Worth guys, all three of them. Jackie Burke, too, who grew up uh, at the beginning of his life in Fort Worth. They were they were tough guys, and uh Jimmy Demerit, of course, was uh, one of the unique players in the history of the PGA, and that he was a he was a great performer. Uh, he could hang with the top guys in Hollywood; they all loved him. Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and that crowd uh, from a long time ago, of course. But he won the Masters three times. Um, Jackie told me that Hogan copied a lot of what Demerit did. Demerit hit a a little fade and a kind of that weak grip in the left hand. And Jackie has always said that Jimmy Demerit's the most underrated player in the history of golf, of his ability to strike the golf ball. Um, his ability, he was able to stay out late at night. It was that old time guys. They could stay out and he could hang uh, out and sing and play instruments, different instruments. And uh, just a phenomenal guy. And you wouldn't think that Ben Hogan and him would maybe gel, except that they were both from Fort Worth. But they were actually very close friends. Uh, and then Jackie Burke, being a little bit younger than those guys, got in very tight with Ben Hogan. They played together every year in, at Champions. Um, it, as you know, Hal, everybody that grew up in Texas or in that part of the country – uh, ben Hogan had a huge influence on them and still does. So we all, um, you know, admired and he was a hero of all of us at, at, in Texas when I was down there. All the guys I played with had that, you know, that weak left hand grip. And uh, I didn't really think about it much till I started teaching more that, you know, uh, Litsky and Rogers and Mahaffey all had the little stronger left hand at the top. Uh, a little more of a bowed wrist with what you need with the left, uh, a weak left hand grip. And, and uh, Demerit had that too. Hogan uh, kind of had that weaker left hand, but he also put in a slight cup at the top of his swing to completely take out the hook out of his game. But those guys are legends in the game, you know, and uh, even that most of the guys on the PGA Tour, maybe not the youngest guys right now, but everybody knows Jackie Burke. I mean, he was been so good to everybody that's ever come to visit him. He's had such a profound uh, impact on the game of golf. I, and I know when I went down to Houston with you and we had a nice, you know, first meeting with, with Jackie. And then he really was super instrumental in, in a, in a big comeback that you made in your, in your career and the name of this podcast really with Jackie Burke had a lot to do with that. Yes, he did. He he had a big influence in my life, as as you said, as he did many people. Yeah, uh, well, he 
he, when I was younger as a pro up in New York, he came up and did golf schools with me in New York. So you can imagine what the members thought of that. And then we did schools in, at Doral and out at PGA West. And, and we entertained some super heavy hitters in, in the financial world. And man, they were hanging on every word that Jackie Berg said. And he whipped their ass into shape when he worked with them because he, he didn't take any gruff, any guff, as you know, Hal. You, you have such great stories about Jackie. But, you know, I had a lot of, I, I spent a lot of hours in his office and he helped me with every interview I ever did to get a head professional job. And he, he you know, he made sure that I was on point with everything that they were going to ask me in an interview. And, he was just so instrumental in my life. He was really like a second father to me. I, you know, I love Jackie Burke, so I, I know what he meant to you too. I think that's the influence that he's had with everybody is that uh, he had a father-like image because he told us the truth. You know, every time I sat down in front of him, I knew I was going to get the truth, and I mean, it might not be what I wanted to hear. But it was going to be the truth. And, of course, that's what most every father does to their son is tell them the truth, you know, and the hard truth. And that's how you get better in life. And that's why I think everybody gravitated to uh, to Jackie was because he wasn't afraid to give you the hard truth. He, he wanted to be your friend, but that wasn't a necessity. You came to see him for advice, and he was going to give you the best advice he could give you. Oh, no doubt. What do, what do you think? What are a couple of things that Jackie told you that really helped you? Well, <clears throat> you know, the very first time I ever met him was when University of Houston was trying to recruit me. And, you know, I was going to go out and play with Keith Fergus, who was playing number one for Houston at the time, and met him out at Champions. And I got there early. And coming out of the back door of the pro shop was Jackie Burke. And, you know, introduced him and it was nice and pleasantries. And uh, the next day, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, let me back up. I asked him what it was like to play the PGA Tour. And he just kind of sloughed it off and didn't give me an answer. So the next day, I was able to go back and play again. And again, I meet him coming out of the pro shop and he just shoves me like this. And... I'm like, what is this for? He said, yesterday you asked me what it was like to play the PGA Tour. He said, that's what it's like. He said, everybody's trying to shove you out of the way and take your place. Are you ready for that? <laughs> that's great. That's yeah, so I mean, much different. Because a day went by, you know, and, and he didn't forget that. You know, he let me know. He was still thinking about me. So a friendship was forged right there. Because I thought, man, he's thinking about me when I'm not there. And I tell kids all the time, listen, if you're not working with somebody that's not thinking about you when you're not there, then that guy's not in tune enough with you. If you're a really good player, you know, you can't say everything you need to say to that person at the time they're in there in one hour or whatever else. So if they leave and you're still thinking about them and you give it to them after the fact, they know, hey, he was thinking about me even when I wasn't in here. And that's what Jackie Burke did really well. Well, I think that's absolutely correct. There have been so many people have come down to see him 
from Jack Nicholas to Ben Crenshaw to Mickelson, Hal Sutton, and, and on and on and on, Tiger Woods, on and on and on, people gone in to see him. And they, a lot of times, don't get what they expect to hear, but they get something that they'll probably remember the rest of their life. And like you said, Hal, they'll, he's going to tell them, you know, what he thinks. He's not going to back up. And, he, and I think we all appreciate that. Uh, he's got a lot of love in his heart when he tells you those things, but he's he's got a lot of that that ex marine in him, and um, he, he doesn't mince words. I guess you'd say. Let's go to Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, I made a lot of trips into Sleepy Hollow to see yeah. you. I remember that. Sleepy Hollow was a big thing in my life. It's one of the great clubs in the United States. I don't think there's a better place that you could be a, a head professional at. I, Sleepy Hollow had everything, Hal. Um, it was the old Vanderbilt estate. It had one of the great drives into a club, maybe the best drive into a club that I've ever seen. But they had a great membership. Uh, had a lot of guys come in. You mentioned you came quite a few times. I remember one thing you did, Hal, and uh, the members still talk about, and you did a clinic. You know, you took some time. You did a clinic for quite a few people, uh, came to that clinic and that was really a big thing for our members there tell you that they built a back end of the range for me when i came uh there was no back in the range and i put the first building probably i think ever on the back of a range and they went and they also built a road for me to come in and and we had a lot of a lot of pros came i'm david rockefeller used to come he, the rockefeller estate was right next to sleepy hollow volcanico and um, they had also given us 18 miles of horseback trails. We kept 50 horses at, at Sleepy Hollow. Um, we had great tennis pro, a great tennis program, great swimming program. We had skeet shooting and bowling alleys in there. It was just an unbelievable club. Uh, I just loved being there. Uh, we had a senior tour championship all, all the six years I was at Sleepy Hollow. Um, but yeah, a lot, I had a, I was teaching the, you know, a lot of the best players in the Mets section, like George Zeringer, who you know, George ended up making a Walker Cup team, uh, won the mid amateur. I played, I taught Kenny Bax there. He won the mid amateur. Guys out of New York. Um, Margaret Platt made it to the LPGA tour, but a lot of uh, tour players would come in there that you know finally where I could had a chance to work with them when I had a kind of that back private area. So it didn't bother anybody. Uh, you know, it's when you're a pro at a private club, it's very difficult usually to do outside lessons. You know, I was just very lucky that, um, you know, Quaker Ridge was pretty good too, but Sleepy was great for me, allowing me to uh, teach outside uh, people. And then uh, the tour players coming in were great. One of the tour players that, came to see me well as a couple one was brad faxon who was he was going off the tour he was pretty much finished and he came and we started working there but the, peter jacobson came a lot and uh he ended up joining sleepy hollow uh so it's got 27 holes um and then having you come hal was really cool uh i, I want to just say this I, I watched you i'll never forget this at sleepy hollow hitting drivers there and you hit about 
30 consecutive drivers that absolutely did not move. And we did this a lot, but there was 30 in a row. The ball had no curve right or left, and it just came out like a cannon shot. And uh, you did that a lot. I, I never really saw anybody hit the ball straighter than Hal Sutton, and that's an absolute fact. Um, man, you could you could drive that golf ball. You did everything good, but driving that golf ball was a major thing that you were able to do to be such a great, you know, such a great amateur player and obviously a great tour player. Well, can I inject something right there, Jim? I thought I was pretty good till I played with Calvin Pete. <laughs> and, and Calvin hit it. Well, so he was straight, pretty. Was, yeah, I mean, you're right. He could hit it down was, the sidewalk. I could hit it down a one lane highway. He could hit it down the sidewalk. <laughs> you know, Calvin, oh, when he finished. Goodness. You know, it was funny. You know, everybody used to ask me, why don't you curve the ball? And it wasn't that I had anything against curving the ball. I just didn't curve it much. And, you know, I tended to hit it a little bit lower than most everybody else. And for whatever reason, and that was because, you know, Byron Nelson was a big influence on me and my golf swing. And he used to tell me about getting on top of the ball, you know, get on top of it, stay on top of the ball. Of course, that wouldn't work in today's game because the equipment, but back in our day, you know, staying on top of the ball was a good thing, but. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, go, go ahead. Jamie, you had a couple of questions. Won't you yeah, throw no, something that, in there? That actually, your last comment there, Hal, uh, led me to my, my you know first topic here, which was uh, the kind of old swing versus a modern swing. Um, Jim, in your opinion, how much has that changed? You know, Hal referenced the equipment there, uh, about staying more on top of the ball. Is that something that... Um, you can't do as much nowadays with the new equipment? Well, what Hal's referring to is getting your, your chest more forward and staying on top of the ball. I, you know, I think, I think that's still relative. I think that's still okay to do. Um, I think the worst mistake that a good player makes is to go underneath the ball and get the club underneath the, the plane. And then you've got a two way miss coming out of there and, and that's something Hal Sutton never did. They going back to your question, the the old swing, which we still I still teach to a lot of people, was more of a the Ernest Jones the swing of swinging the club head, uh, more hand action, more release, t teaching people to hit a draw, a hook. You know, they like when you went to see Mr. Pennick, Harvey Pennick, and people like that, and Jackie Burke. You know, you would teach people to learn to draw it. And then after you did that, when you got to be maybe a, a much better player, you could go back to maybe hitting the fade. Mm -hmm. um, Hal was able to hit it straight. And that, and that, and he also referred to Calvin Pete. There've been a few people on a Kassorenstam as uh, another one to just hit it so straight. We've always been taught the hardest shot in golf is a straight ball. Um, but uh, there's been a few people, not too many that I've watched in my life, that really consistently hit the ball pretty dead straight. Most most players play either a draw, like McElroy drawing it, or uh, John Rahm fading it uh, to uh, kind of eliminate one side of the of the ballpark. But going back to uh, the the old swing, it was more of a fluid swing, and of course we were playing with wooden headed clubs, and you had to hit the ball right on the button to be a good player. If you hit the ball in the heel or, or out on the toe, it was going to be a very bad shot. So it was much more of a fluid shot. 
right now on the PGA Tour, um, the drives a launch. I mean, they're just coming out of the ground, hitting it as hard as they can. And the reason you can do that is because the ball doesn't curve anywhere near like it used to. It doesn't spin like it used to. So um, these kids grew up with clubs that fit them right from the, an early age. Um, and they learned to hit it hard. Uh, and it's uh, from what Hal Sutton, would, when he played, you had to manage yourself around that golf course and keep the ball in play. And now they really don't almost care if they – well, I know they don't care if they hit it in the rough, as long as they can hit it 330 yards, 340 yards. To me, it's I don't like it. It's a sad deal. Uh, they're talk, they've talked about reining the golf ball in for, for forever, but it's a it's a driver and a wedge game and a putting game pretty much now. And the par fours are 530 yards long, and they got to get a lot of real estate out there to. Uh, for the big boys to play the tour players, but um, just a very, I'd say a very, very different game for sure. Yeah. The, um, what, what did you see in, in players like Hal uh, or someone like Calvin Pete? Like what, what was it about their swings and their technique that allowed them to hit the ball so straight? Well, both of those guys, uh, both Hal and, and Calvin really put the club up in the air early in the backswing. Um, you know, would get the club up and then the club would shallow fall in the downswing. Uh, both, you know, I mean, Calvin had a very different swing. He had the left arm was uh, broken and he had a, a arm tucked into his side. And that was a big thing that Hal did was uh, staying connected, staying together. And with Calvin having his arm uh, broken, he, he really was a big muscle player. Um, he was a, uh, a very much a right-sided player too, and I know that because uh, Calvin came and taught for me after he stopped playing. He came to Doral and taught uh, off and on, but I got to spend quite a bit of time with him. And I'll tell you this: uh, uh, I worked with Ken Venturi a lot too, and Ken Venturi was a huge uh, Byron Nelson. You know, was a, he was a protege like Hal was, and they were right-side players. And old golf swings were left side, all left side teaching. But uh, Kenny was always always working on the right side. And that's what Hal's talking about, covering the ball, of getting your right side through the golf shot and staying connected with the, with the left arm pinned to your left side, which one uh, of my times with Sam Snead, I spent a lot of time with Sam. That was a big thing that Sam talked about. Um, so, Hal, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you did there with your swing of, of, of more of a right side thought and, and also getting the club up on the backswing. Well, yeah, I was, I wouldn't have called myself an early setter, but no, no, I didn't mean that. That's why I kind of backed yeah, off. I know, that, but, I know, but, I know, but I got the club up. I didn't resist the club going up. Uh, one of the things that uh, Byron Nelson said to me that I think is important that we inject right now. He said, how, when you get scared, try to drive the ball in the ground right in front of you. <laughs> That's good. And w when you think about that, the only way to do that is to be on top of the ball, you know, and to, you know, all the guys that had the two way miss were trying to hit the ball in the clouds all the time. 
and you talked about that earlier. They got it under the plane, and, you know, they were trying to carry the ball a long ways, and that caused the two-way miss. They didn't know if they are going to miss it right or left, depending on where the club face was at at the time, you know. And, you know, all the best players that I got the privilege of playing with, and I'll mention one right here, Lee Trevino, there was never one better than that, and he always knew where the club face was at. And all the best players knew where the club face was at. And, you know, if they didn't know where it was at, they were missing the cut, trust me. I mean, you agree with that, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely agree with it. I, I had one time when I was walking around watching Hogan play out at Champions, and I was, you know, we were pretty close because there were really not many people, hardly nobody out there watching because they didn't really know Hogan was there. But uh, Jackie was talking about Trevino with Hogan because uh, Hogan – had been the winner of the U.S. Open in 1968, I think. And everyone, a lot of people were saying it's a fluke. You know, he's got a funny swing and, and there's a lot of controversy. And I distinctly remember Jackie talking to Hogan about that. And Hogan said, no, this guy's going to win more majors. He knows what he's doing. I watched him swing. He lo- he loved Trevino's swing. And a lot of people, hell, they didn't like Trevino's swing. They couldn't understand what he was doing. Yeah, a lot of people didn't like it, but I'll tell you one thing. Having <laughs> played a lot of golf with it, they should have liked it because <laughs> he consistently did it as well as anybody. And he was a shot maker, you know, and there was never anybody that believed in himself more than uh, Lee. And, you know, he was he was a character to play golf with and – you know, I miss seeing Lee. He was always fun in the locker room. Lee Lee played in the the senior the Champions Tour event when I was at when I was at Sleepy Hollow, and he would get there real early for every day. He wanted to be in the locker room two hours ahead of time, and I followed him around like you can't believe. But I, he would be smoking a couple of cigs in the in the locker room and joking around. But he would walk out of that locker room exactly at the right time every time. That's the way, the way he told me he tried to do it. And then I would just go sit behind him on the range, and he would take those divots that were just long and flat, and that golf ball was, I mean, just coming right in on that on the pin. He won the event twice when I was there. And, uh, of course, he was in, in his 50s at that time. But – what a what a magnificent player, uh, and a lot of guys put him in the category of Ben Hogan as being that good of being able to control the golf ball. Yeah, I was playing with Lee one time at Muirfield Village. We were on the eighth tee. I will never forget this as long as I live. And it was a practice round, and he and I were we were playing by ourselves. We were walking off the tee, and. I'd hit it really close. The pin was down on the front, and I'd hit it like two or three feet, you know, and he hit it in there eight or ten feet. We're walking down there. Both of us feeling pretty good about the shot that we hit. And he said, he looks over at me, and he said, Hal, he said, if you want to be a good player for the rest of your life, you control the club for two feet at the bottom. And I said, so tell me exactly what you mean by that, controlling the club two feet at the bottom. He said, well, it's on an arc. And he said, we don't want it to be a U, we want it to be flatter. And then we want to club, control that club face for that two feet. 
He said, you did it on that shot. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty generic, you know. But, but, I mean, he it meant something to him. It meant something deep to him, you know. That's what he was trying to do. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I – That's what I, one of the things I remember are those divots he took were so long and so – the whole club was on the ground the whole time. There's, right. You know, I remember working – Well, worked that's why so I much. told that story was because you mentioned that, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's so it. many great stories about so many of the old guys, you know. I mean, one of the great stories that Nicholas had that with me was – this, and this is not even um, applicable today, but this is back when we were wearing spikes. And I was playing a practice round with him one day, and I'm watching him walk around the hole and look at the area. And it wasn't even a practice round. It was a tournament. And then after the, the play that day is when I asked him. I'm watching him walk around. He's looking at where all the spike marks are on the other side of the hole. And I'm, I'm like, what are you looking at after we got finished? And he said, well, he said, you can tell where everybody's missing the putt by where they're standing on the other side. Wow. <laughs> so, that's really good. You know, that's pretty deep. But that's how, I mean, we did it for a living. So, you know, you had to understand the whole game, not just part of the game. And, uh, you know, I was always learning from all those old guys like that. You know, they, they'd done it for a long time. And, you know, in, in today's world, I don't know if it's this way or not where everybody else is at, but, you know, I don't see the young kids wanting to know much that we knew. And, you know, it's like, get out of the way. We'll show you how it's done. And I was always, you know, you get, you put me in the presence of Byron Nelson, Jack Nicholas, uh, Ben Hogan. I was in Ben Hogan's office several times. Uh, I wanted to know what they had to say. I wanted to know what Lee Trevino thought. You know, I wanted to know what Raymond, Raymond Floyd was a big influence in my golf career. You know, one of the great competitors of all time was Raymond Floyd. He probably got done more done with less than maybe anybody on the tour, but he had an, a, a huge heart and he'd fight to the bitter end. Yeah. Now Raymond is considered the greatest chipper of his time and pitcher and I was able to spend a little bit of time with him, but you've played with him a lot. He st he stood right on. He showed me he stood right on top of those chips, and and really got the club up, got his hands up high, and he he had a little wrist action in it too. He didn't try to be like sometimes you hear trying to stiff. He had a little bit of hand action in there, and uh, can you can you tell us a little bit more about what what you saw with him around the greens? Well, you know, Raymond was an incredible chipper and pitcher of the ball. He used all the clubs. He didn't just use wedges. Uh, he liked getting the ball on the ground as quick as he could get it on the ground. Uh, but I wouldn't say that a lot of people could have taken his technique and done as well as he did with it. So, you know, one of the things that I think, since you're on here and you're one of the great teachers in the game, I'm going to say this, and then you tell me whether I'm right or wrong on this. Not every swing fits everybody. And, you know, just because you see somebody be successful with something doesn't necessarily mean that that's applicable to your own game. So, you know, what I try to tell kids is let's look for your best version of you instead of what somebody else does. And, and we try to implement that into your game. What do you think about that, Jim? Well, um, 
Hal, that's the centerpiece of my the teaching that I work on with all the guys that work for me is I don't box them in and tell them how they're going to teach a, a method, uh, teach the same thing to everybody. Because I had the chance, I had the fortunate chance that a lot of teachers, I see young teachers, didn't they hadn't played and they hadn't played with a lot of great players so i at least had the opportunity to play with a lot of great players not just the guys i played with at texas but lanny watkins and johnny miller and you know hubert green uh you know i could go on on hale Irwin. i played with a ton of a ton of guys myself and I know, I knew in my teaching, there's no, I had to come up with a way of doing golf schools because we have to be singing off the same sheet of music in a golf school. But uh, there, there's a lot of room, certainly in the backswing. Jackie always talked about, you know, the backswing is almost, I mean, it's good to have a, a good backswing. But when you look at the PGA Tour of all the different ways, like we met, we talked about Calvin Pete took the club actually inverted on his backswing, so vertical going up. And, uh, and then Matthew Fitzpatrick and, and Bruce Litsky, for example, are taking it way inside on their backswing, or Sam Snead. So you, there, there's a lot of ways to, to play, like you said. You, you referred to that two feet at the bottom. I, I always say it's waist high to waist high, that you've got to have a neutral swing path to be a good player. I mean, you could be a little inside out or a little bit outside in, but you got to be really good coming through impact. You got to be able to hit the center of that club face consistently. When I worked recently with Russell Henley, uh, he was hitting some hooks with it, he, at in, in, in proper times, you know, times when it, it really meant something. He wasn't doing it all the time, but it was, he had that fear a little bit. And, um, the number one thing I saw when I worked with him was he was hitting it just slightly on the toe. And Hal, you probably like this story. You know, he said, well, what do I do? So I, I mean, because I'm marking it and he's for weeks, you know, uh, hitting it. You tend to hit it on the toe. And I said, well, how about if you line it? Let's just line it up more into the to the heel of the club, into the hosel. Put it in there close like that. And he said, well, can I do that? And I said, well, Jack Nicholas did it. You know, yeah, of course you could do it. So he just, you know, it's such a simple thing. It wasn't any profound teaching with, with Russell, but we just moved the, the, the ball more into the heel at address. And then he started hitting the center all the time, you know. So sometimes it's a real simple thing with a great player like, like you, Hal, or when you're working with somebody, but it's not just – changing their swing to look like a model i can tell you that that's for absolute certainty so um well, yeah golf's a game a entire yeah. fuzzy yeah. zeller had an inside uh, an entire career of lining up in the hosel of the club so he put it yeah outside the hosel he, he put it out there like uh it was going way back dudley weiss song i'm sure it's been beyond your time but he used to put the ball on that completely inside the hosel and, and fuzzy did that and fuzzy yeah. told me I, I play with fuzzy a number of times and uh after he'd won the u.s open i played with him up in kentucky and uh i said fuzzy what's your number one thought and he said i feel like there's a red dot right on the hosel of my club and when i come down i'm bringing that dot right at the ball so 
you know, that's something I never heard anybody say. And like what you did with, with Trevino and some of the other examples you've said, sometimes, you know, it's a, an unbelievable or a different thought that these great players have. It's a feel that they have, you know, and it may not be real as we've all, you know, we right. all say feels not real, but the truth is it's real to them. And that's what's working Absolutely. for them. And the camera will tell us the truth. You know, in my opinion, you know, we've got TrackMan and we've got all these radars and everything that measures everything now. But I still think the high-speed cameras do more for the game than anything else because they tell the truth. They show you right where you're at. And, you know, you can get a, an average player to look better if you take the ball away from them because the ball owns them. If you take the ball away and say, okay, let's exaggerate all these fields and let's see how good you can be. They look like a tour player in 10 minutes because the ball's not causing them to get to interfere because they're trying to produce a result. You know, all they're trying to do is work on their golf swing. So that's good. Uh, I hope everybody out there is listening to that. You can do a lot better if you move the ball out of the way. There is absolutely no doubt about it. You know, on all of my schools, we do a lot, a lot of golf swings. I just finished one. We did a ton of golf swings without hitting a golf ball. And um, not many people want to do that. They go right to the range and start banging away, and they don't do any any practice swings. And uh, their practice swing is not nearly as good as they think it is either, Al. you got to work on that practice swing to make it better. And like you said, it if you did it for 10 minutes and really worked with a camera because, and I agree with you a hundred percent because I've got every possible thing in, in this school. I'm right here right now and down at the Biltmore in, in Florida. Um, I've got everything out there, but my number one thing is that camera. Uh, I think people thought that the track man was going to be the panacea. If I could get my numbers, like zero out my swing, I'm going to hit the ball like Hal Sutton, but that absolutely has not happened. And, uh, just it's just it's a one nice device to have we're using foresight quads right now but um a lot of the tour players which people don't know they don't know this when they're seeing maybe at a tournament using a track man or a quad they're really just getting their distances they're not going through all those numbers you got a, a 15 different parameters they're thinking about when they're swinging because you can't play with all that information in your head no, that information is really for the teachers. And the minute the player gets bogged down in it, then their uh, uh, tension sets in and everything else. So let's let's talk about this. You're at the Belmore Hotel at Coral Gables, if I'm right. Am, am I right? You're right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to take you back a long ways. 1973-234, I played in the Orange Bowl Classic there at the Biltmore Hotel. And uh, it's changed a lot since then. There was actually a fence around it and nothing but the pro shop in the back for the golf course because they had mm -hmm. not redone the hotel at that time. But one of the grand places in America, the Biltmore Hotel. Yeah, well, thanks, Al. Um, I spent 26 years at Doral, as you well know. and We, we had some good times down there, too. Uh, I love Doral. But I moved over here to the Biltmore. They've treated me great. It's it's a beautiful place. Coral Gables is right next to the University of Miami here and pretty close to the city of Miami. So um, 
Yeah, I've also got a school over at Miami Beach, Miami Beach Golf Club. So we've got two spots down here, and um, the winters are tough to beat. Uh, I've been, spent a lot of my life down here in Florida. Uh, so, yeah, it's been it's been great. Um, we, you know, we've got a great team of teachers here, and we're really it's been unbelievable how busy golf is right now. We're in a big boom time similar to like it was back in the 90s, but golf has really exploded, and it's been a good time to be in the game. Well, Jim, we appreciate you being on Be the Right Club today. You and I go back a long ways, and and uh, George Zeringer, great friend of ours, you mentioned his name earlier. You know, uh, I miss those days. We're, uh, we're not going to have those days anymore, <laughs> but uh, I, we got them in our head, don't we? We do. I can't even imagine. We can't get into all the fun times we've done together. We've had a lot of great times, and I I cherish them. Hal, I cherish those times, and I also um, never never forget watching you hit a golf ball because it was it was an awesome sight, man. Thanks for having me on. Okay, everybody, welcome back. That was a superb interview with uh, with Jim. I could have listened to those stories. As I said at the end of the interview, I could have listened to those stories all day. Um, Hal, what were your biggest uh, takeaways from that? Well, I think I mentioned that he learned from everybody, and it was pretty obvious after uh, the interview was over with that he did learn something from everybody. He uh, nobody studied what great players did and then, then asked them about it. You know, actually asked them direct questions about, you know, what it was that made them the player that they were. And, uh, you know, Jim's a great guy. He's delightful. He's easy. He's soft-spoken. Uh, and that came across in the interview. He, he's, uh, he's quite a guy. Yeah, I love the um, when he talked about the simplicity of the golf swing. Sometimes, like when he was working with Russell Henley, and he just made a slight adjustment to set up, and that really helped Russell feel uh, like he could strike it more out the middle. Just little simple things like that. Now, you you worked with Jim for a little bit. How like what was it like working with him in the uh, lesson environment? Uh well, that's been a long time ago. So let me see if I can recall. <laughs> uh, we worked a lot on foot action that I remember. Uh, you know, and that's something he was ahead of his time in that, as far as I was concerned. You know, that's something that uh, we work a lot on now. We pay attention to what people's feet are doing and how they're, you know, utilizing the ground. Uh, Jim was way ahead of that. He was, his, I recall we worked on my right foot a lot and uh, did the finish, you know, yeah. how soon it got off the ground. I was, I was a guy, one of the things that he used to comment about in my golf swing, I never lifted my left heel up in my backswing. My, I floated to the inside of my left foot, but I never lifted my heel up. And 
you know, one of the things that he paid particular attention to was how fast your right heel got off the ground, you know, and was it too soon? Was it, uh, too late? Uh, mm. you know, there was kind of an exact time that it needed to take place. Not, you know, if it was too soon, you were working under the ball. And, uh, if it was too late, you were too upper body. So, uh, he was ahead of his time on that, I think. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing how many of the, the great players he's worked with over the years. Um, I've been I've been looking at the list of all the players he's worked with, and uh, it's, it's it's tremendous. Like when you when you talk about that um, si- simplicity of working with with tour players, do you feel like that's the same with every student out there, whether an amateur or a pro? The more we can make it simple and. Um, it's an easy game to get really complex and get really uh, complicated, right? So that simplicity is key. Well, I think it's, we're in a difficult time right now as far as teaching is concerned because people want to get their money's worth. And, yeah. and sometimes that's more information than they can actually handle. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a – I mean, you know this as well as anybody does. Jamie, this is not a one lesson and done type thing to be the player that anybody that's listening to this podcast dreams about being. It's a journey to get there. And how quickly you get information has something to do with, and and in the order that you get it, has something to do with how long or short your journey will be. And, you know, to me, Every time I teach someone, I'm looking for the one thing that I think I can help them with that day that will lead to the next step. Uh, yeah. And most of the time, people want step two, three, four, and, you know, they they can't handle that. And nor can a tour pro, to be quite honest with you. You know, yeah. most of the time when I would go see somebody to work on my golf game, I needed to leave with one thought that I yeah. could work on. Yeah. And, uh if I, if I left with two or three thoughts, confusion had set in. And uh, so I hope that helps people out there. Just look for the one thing that might help you be better this time and, and work on that for a while and then go back for step two. Yeah, this game requires a lot of patience, eh, Hal? <laughs> patience. Patience, patience, and, patience, yes. Patience and discipline. But, uh, but no, great. Well, that was a fantastic interview. And, you know, I'm looking forward to, for, personally for me this week, I am. Um, I got invited to play in the member guest at Houston Oaks. So those that have uh, those that have played golf with me will know that I am susceptible to that toe hook like Russell Henley. So maybe I'll be practicing lining it up off the hosel for uh, this week. <laughs> well, I hope uh, you play well this week, Jamie, because we all want to do that, don't we? Definitely. All right. Uh, Thanks, Hal. And uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks time for episode 10. Thanks now. Sounds good.